The following is an exclusive presentation of Pirate Radio, the voice of the Pirate Nation. Welcome to the Pirate Radio Podcast, featuring special guests discussing a wide range of topics and personal stories. The Pirate Radio Podcast is presented by White Claw Hard Seltzer. Nothing tastes quite like it. Visit WhiteClaw.com today. White Claw Hard Seltzer, proudly distributed by Coastal Beverage. Please drink responsibly. Now live from the Pirate Radio Studio, here's Shirley Rhodes. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Pirate Radio Podcast featuring Coach Mac McCarthy. The Pirate Radio Podcast is brought to you by White Claw Hard Seltzer. On today's podcast, The Voice, Jeff Charles, will have a great discussion on Coach Mac's career and what he's up to these days. Sit back and relax. Today's Pirate Radio Podcast presented by White Claw Hard Seltzer with Coach Mac McCarthy starts right now. Thank you, Shirley. Today, we're talking basketball with a former head coach of the Pirates, Mac McCarthy. Coach Mac has had quite a remarkable career with 343 career wins, 243 of those victories during a terrific run at Chattanooga. He's coached great players like Charles Barkley and coached with great coaches like Sonny Smith. Basketball has been a big part of his life, and we're going to have fun talking hoops today with Coach Mack. Coach, thanks so much for joining us. How in the world have you been? I've been good. It's uh, Obviously, we've been pretty slow over the last 12 months or so, like everybody, trying to stay safe. But uh, but we've managed to uh, struggle on through it and, uh, and even be productive a little bit. <laughs> that sounds good. You are still making Greenville your home all of these years. You've been here now for quite a while, haven't you? We've been here longer than anywhere we've ever lived and lived in this house that uh, that Gene built when we first got here uh, longer than any one home we've ever been in. And, uh, and we like we have great neighbors. We have a great house, a great location, great community. And, and Gene's an hour from the beach, which uh, which is big on her list of priorities. And uh, I get I get up some mornings and there's a note beside me said, I'll see you at dinner. And. <laughs> <laughs> I know where she's gone. So this has worked out great. And with what I'm doing with television and radio and that kind of thing, I can do from anywhere. So uh, this is this has been nice. It, uh, it, it feels very much like home. Coach, uh, we want to do a This Is Your Life, Mac McCarthy, on our show uh, today. So <laughs> so let, let's go back to the very beginning. When did you develop a love for basketball? Well, you know, you know growing up, Jeff, I just liked anything to do with sports um it you know it didn't matter whatever the season was you know we were playing it and uh I, the basketball became became kind of the focus as i grew an awful lot by the time i was in the in the seventh grade i was already like six one and uh um, i did not know at that time that that was as tall as i'd ever get, but, uh <laughs> But it, it sort of made me an easy target for the uh, – I had a neighbor who was a basketball coach, and the neighborhood put up a, a, a nice goal uh, in, a, in a field next to us. So I spent many hours out there, and uh, that, that kind of uh, piqued my interest and probably pointed me in that direction. But, you know, when I got to high school, I played everything. We played football, ran track and field, played golf, played tennis, played a little bit of everything. Uh, our high school, ironically, didn't have baseball, but we played baseball in different leagues during the summer. So um, I didn't I didn't know what I was going to do going into the future, but I was pretty darn sure it was going to involve sports. Coach, give us a geography lesson. You were born in Woodstock, Virginia. Exactly where is that? 
Well, I was actually born in Covington, Virginia. Okay. It's up near uh, near Hot Springs and uh, Greenbrier up in uh, the kind of western Virginia, west of VMI, if you will. Uh, but, I, but I did grow up in Woodstock, uh, which is more up in the Shenandoah Valley, about 30 minutes north of James Madison and Harrisonburg in that area. Uh, about an hour and a half west of Washington, D.C., and uh, it was a great town to grow up in, on, on probably 2,500 people or so, and uh, it was one of those towns where uh, if you did something wrong, uh, your parents knew it before you got home, uh, so you, you, had to, you had to behave pretty well, and the, and the entire community was kind of looking out for you or after you or whatever you want to say. I'm glad you mentioned that, Coach, because I want to go back uh, to your youth. I don't know if you are aware of this or not. You were born in 1952, and there's a group of us in Greenville. I call them the 52 boys. It's Coach O, Gary Overton, Don Edwards, the owner of UBE, my broadcast partner, Cy Seymour, football official, Daryl Harrison, and I was born in 1952 as well. So we have a lot in common because we are from that era. But as you mentioned, Coach, it was a it was a totally different time, a totally different place. As you look at the world today and the way that kids are growing up, what, what do you think is the biggest change from the way we grew up in the 50s and 60s and the way kids are growing up today? Well, I'm sure it's much, much harder today. I, I will say that. But first, about the 52 group, that's an interesting group of people. How come those other guys look so much older than you and I do? I don't know. I've, I've been trying to figure that out myself. Daryl is my is literally my neighbor, so I'm going to be giving him a hard time for sure. <laughs> but uh, I, I think the big thing is that it was just a simpler time. And, uh, you know, we had to kind of occupy ourselves. It was certainly was no internet or cell phone or uh, or any other distractions and uh, I, I I think it was a great time to grow up to be honest uh, you know we we literally like we said played sports and I, I cut a I took a pair of clippers and cut a green in the field next to us and made a golf course with nine different tees and like we mentioned about the basketball goal out in the middle of the field and throwing baseball against the front porch steps. Uh, I think it required a lot more imagination then than it does now. But uh, I think the biggest part of it was uh, you had to really search out uh, things to, to strive for, if you will, because uh, you, you didn't have all the information about traveling. I mean, a big trip to me was going outside the county at that time. I had never even imagined that I'd get to do some of the things I've gotten to do uh, as life has progressed. So you finish up in high school, you go on to uh, Virginia Tech, and back in the day at Virginia Tech, Coach, did they call it VPI then when you enrolled at Virginia Tech? Mostly they did call it VPI. Uh, you know, a lot of people certainly call it Virginia Tech, too. And then officially, while I was there, they, they changed the name to Virginia Polytechnic Institute and State University, which was uh, just too cumbersome to ever catch on for sure. But uh, I guess the, the, the bigger difference then and now is that we were the Gobblers, and, uh, and Hokies was kind of a secondary name. And, and now, of course, Gobblers isn't used at all, and they are the Hokies. But... Uh, yeah, I, I ended up going there. My dad had gone there, and uh, I, I was certainly, uh, you know, brainwashed into thinking that was the place to go. And 
I'm really glad that I did. It was the it was the beginning of a lot of really good things for me. Well, you're right. Bill Dooley started to change that back in the 80s and started to emphasize Hokies rather than Gobblers. We're visiting with mm-hmm. Mac McCarthy, and you remember Coach Mac as the head coach at East Carolina and the head coach at at VCU and also at Chattanooga. Coach, uh, let, let's talk about now when you started to think about going into coaching as a career. You're at Virginia Tech as a student, and I think you got involved in basketball then as a, a coaching career, right? I did. And I, and I actually went, Jeff, uh, ironically, to Virginia Tech to kind of get into uh, sports writing. Uh, I had done a bunch of that in high school. I had, I had written for a daily paper, covered games. I had... Uh, been the sports editor of a weekly paper during the summer times that where I did did more uh, you know various kinds of stories and uh, had a lot, a lot of responsibilities for ha- having an entire page from taking the photographs to the layout to, that's kind of where my head was but as I got to Virginia Tech we, we literally played basketball every day we and Virginia Tech has one of the biggest intramural programs in the country I couldn't make the I couldn't make the old freshman team at that time. That's when freshmen were ineligible, but I played with all those guys, got to know them, um, and then just played intramurals, kind of naturally went toward the coaching end of things. But it really took off when I did my student teaching uh, at a school that doesn't even exist anymore, Andrew Lewis in Salem, Virginia. Um, And I got to, to know the basketball coaches there, and they involved me and, uh, in their practices and games and that kind of thing. And then they they suggested that I talk to Sonny Smith, who was an assistant for Don DeVoe at the time, about a possible graduate assistantship. I hadn't even thought of that. Applied for a bunch of high school coaching jobs, didn't get any of those, and thought, well, maybe grad school will be a good idea. And just so lucky, so, so falling into a, a good situation – uh, I went to see Coach DeVoe and Coach Smith first, then Coach DeVoe, and he said, no, we've got a grad assistant. And at that time, grad assistants could do everything. They could recruit, coach, the whole bit. Uh, they were just a grad assistant because they weren't getting paid very much. But he said, we've already got one. And then the day before practice started, you know, the old traditional October 15th, Coach DeVoe called me and said, listen, my grad assistant is really good at recruiting. I've got him on the road a lot, and I, I really need somebody to just help me at practice. Would you be interested? And, uh, and of course, you know, here I was. I, I didn't have any clue what I was about to get into or, or what was involved in it, but I was excited about the opportunity, and, uh, and we, we hit it off. Things went well. I became the graduate assistant full-time for the, for the following season where we went to the NCAA, and all of a sudden I was off and running on, on a coaching career that I, I really hadn't planned, to be honest. Wow, that is quite a story. And then, Coach, uh, with the relationship with Sonny Smith, then you get an opportunity to coach uh, college basketball at, at East Tennessee. I've done a number of games at East Tennessee over the years. I'm trying to remember the time frame now. But when you went there, was it the mini-dome? Did East Tennessee State play in the mini-dome when you went there, or was that later? They had just finished the mini-dome, Jeff, when I went there in 1976, but they had a lot of safety issues. They couldn't open the building. So we played our first year there in old Brook, what's called Brooks Gymnasium. It was a memorial gymnasium then, but it was an old 3,500-seat glorified high school gym. 
Uh, and we played all our games in that gym the first year and then moved into the mini dome the next year. Um, and the mini dome has taken on many iterations through the years, but that first year they didn't have the money to complete the risers and the seats close to the court. So we literally had the court in the middle of a football field and all the fans sat in the stands. So they were at least 50 yards from the court. Wow. So bizarre. But we had a really good team. People were excited. They wanted to see the building. And I think our last three games of the season, we even sold the place out with 12,000 seats. It was really really a bizarre scene. Well, East Tennessee's always had a great basketball tradition. And with Sonny Smith, Mac, I wanted to ask you about your relationship with Coach because I know you guys go back so many years. And he's had a great influence on your life, both uh, personally and professionally, hasn't he? Uh, no question. Uh, you know, from that very first day, I went by the Virginia Tech basketball office, just introduced myself, and I asked if Coach DeVoe was in, and uh, and he wasn't. And the secretary said, well, let me introduce you to Coach Smith. And he was watching video. Uh, he was watching the old, the old 16-millimeter film in a room, and uh, he called me in there and said, come on in here and sit. Watch a little film with me. And we sat there for three or four hours like we had been best friends it, it was just unbelievable he was he was i can remember to this day he was watching film of two junior college players one was a kid named they were both from north carolina one was a kid named sleepy taylor who ended up going to middle tennessee state being a great player and one was named larry cook who was originally from south carolina but was in school in north carolina and uh we ended up signing him and he ended up being a second round draft choice by the atlanta hawks um, during the during the film, uh, Sonny's wife came by the office, uh, Jan, who obviously we've been close friends forever now, and she brought their their oldest son Steve uh, by, and he had fallen in basketball practice, uh, tried to take a charge and broken both arms, he had both arms in a cast, and I, the the whole day is such a vivid memory because we went on to be. Very best friend. Sonny is one of, as you know, one of the funniest people in the world. He was great to work with. And I think because of his humor and down home, uh, Rome Mountain kind of background, I don't think really people took him as seriously uh, as they should have as a basketball coach. Uh, for instance, when we got to Auburn, he went, he, we went to five straight NCAAs. Auburn had never been to the NCAA. And they haven't been to five since then. But we went to five straight, or Sonny went to five straight, and I don't think he got nearly as much credit uh, as a great basketball coach as he probably should have just because of his personality. Well, one of the reasons Auburn went to those NCAA tournaments is because they had a guy by the name of Charles Barkley, and I know you were close to Charles uh, when you were a coach. He was a player, and you're still close to Charles to this day. I remember when he came back to Greenville a few years ago. So I, I know, Coach, you've got some Charles Barkley stories for us. So tell us a little bit about those times. <laughs> well, Charles is certainly an interesting guy. We uh, we we stumbled onto Charles. We uh, the one of the other assistants, a guy named Herbert Green, who ended up being a longtime coach and AD at Columbus State uh, Division II school in Georgia, uh, went to see a, another young man at Leeds High School. Uh, and we were going to see him partly because, we, you know, he had been on the list and everybody said he was a good player. Um, I, I've, I've dropped his name now that I, that I bring him up. But 
their high school coach, the high school coach at Leeds, had played at Auburn and was a really nice man. He said, yeah, you need to come see this kid, but I've got another kid too. And uh, so Herbert Green went to see Charles at a Christmas tournament in Huntsville, Alabama. And they were playing against Butler High School, which had a, a center who was the number one center in the country, a kid named Bobby Lee Hurt. Well, Charles just beat the living daylight out of Bobby Lee. He just dominated him. And at six four and a half or whatever Charles was and 280 pounds, he wasn't a prototypical player that you project uh, having success but when Herbert came back from that trip, he said, we're recruiting the wrong guy. We have to recruit this guy named Charles Barkley. And, uh, and of course, the, the rest is kind of history. Uh, when we got Charles, we knew he'd be a little bit of a challenge. And uh, maybe my biggest Charles story is, uh, involves Gene, my wife, because we, uh, we knew he was going to be a little bit of a challenge um, because he was an unusual character, just like he is today. <laughs> and we literally sold our house and moved into the athletic dorm. We moved into a room about the size of a Holiday Inn, kind of an efficiency uh, apartment, if you will. It had a had a stove and a refrigerator and a sink, maybe, and uh, and that was about it. But uh, we sold a very nice house, moved into the dorm, and. And for the next couple of years, I walked Charles to class every single day and uh, kind of was his uh, <laughs> supervisor, if you will. And, uh, and Charles will tell you today, if we're at a, we're at a function and uh, uh, he'll introduce me, he'll say, there's Mac McCarthy. He said, let me tell you, when I was in college, I hated this man. I absolutely <laughs> hated him. Couldn't stand him. And, uh, and of course, fortunately now in in retrospect, he understands what we were doing and why we were doing it and, and why it was successful. But uh, uh, he certainly was a challenge to coach. And, uh, uh, you know, he kind of determined when he would turn it on and turn it off. And, of course, during the off season, he would he would gain a bunch of weight and then he'd get it back off and, and be ready to play. But uh, he, he was an exceptional talent and has gone on to do, as you well know, be one of the top 50 players ever in the NBA and uh, I'm I'm not so sure he hasn't been more successful as a broadcaster uh, at, that that he was as a player to be to be totally brutally honest and uh, and of course his his commercials with with Capital One and all the other things he does are are, are just hilarious and uh, uh, the great thing about Charles is he's always been himself there is no there is no Charles behind the scenes. Who he comes across as on TV is who he is, and uh, uh, I've been lucky that we've gotten to be really close and, uh, and stay in regular touch through the years. We're visiting with Mac McCarthy, Coach. Uh, you guys, as you mentioned, have a great success at Auburn, and when you're an assistant and at that certain age and you're having success, people tend to look at those coaches and, and head jobs. Uh, were you actively seeking a, another head job, or tell us how the whole Chattanooga situation occurred? No, it, I, I really wasn't, although that was kind of the next logical step. But uh, I enjoyed working for Sonny so much. Loved living in Auburn, Alabama. Uh, you know, I had been around football, at, at obviously, at Virginia Tech, different level at East Tennessee State. But being in the SEC and um, and having an opportunity to, to be there with when Coach Dye, obviously, with East Carolina Connections, uh, you know, got that program going and, Bo Jackson and all the great players that came through there and uh, just that the whole thing was fun we just 
we had a great time and we were winning and people were excited about it, but we were still a little bit under the radar. We didn't have the scrutiny of a Kentucky or, or someone like that, but, uh, uh, it seemed to be an awfully good fit. So I was really in no hurry to, to go anywhere or do anything. Uh, but uh, because of the success, like you mentioned, we were getting an awful lot of attention, um, and, I, and I did apply for that job. And it came on the heels of uh, we went to the NCAA when, when Charles was whatever his, his third year when he went, went on to the, to the NBA. And then, uh, and then the next year we had a, a really young but really talented team. The entire team got drafted by the, by the NBA, the, the entire starting lineup. But because we were so young, started two freshman guards, we finished eighth in the regular season, Jeff. But we, were, we knew we were much better than that. And we caught fire in the tournament and won four games in four days, had to play in the play-in game, and beat Alabama on national TV at noon on Selection Sunday uh, in, in a great game against a really good Alabama team and Webb Sanderson and Buck Johnson and all the great players. Mark Godfrey was on that team. Jim Farmer was on that team. Uh, I think that whole team got drafted, too. Uh, and because of that, we, we got a lot of publicity. And then the Chattanooga thing was really strange because it uh, Murray Arnold had done a great job there, but not a, not a household name, but he had been to the – he had won four championships in seven years as they went from Division Two to Division One, they had had a great Division Two program with Ron Shoemate, won a national championship, finished second one year, uh, and then went to Division One in the Southern Conference. And Murray Arnold had had taken them to, to great heights, moved into a brand new building called the Roundhouse, right on campus, beautiful arena, um, and a great city. And we actually played my last year at Auburn. We played in Chattanooga's tournament. Um, Ironically, we didn't win it, and Chattanooga didn't win it. A team from VCU won. It. Wow! Uh, they were they were a team uh, that maybe VCU's best team, I guess. Even the team that went to the Final Four, I'm not sure was as good as that team. They finished number eight in the country that year, um, and and they beat us uh, in the semifinal, and then beat Chattanooga in the championship game. So I had been there, was aware of the program. But Murray had wanted to get his assistant, a guy named Bill Gleason, the job. So he resigns in the first week in August thinking they've got to give him the job. Well, they didn't give him the job. And, uh, and of course, they had a real compressed time to, uh, to find a coach because school was getting ready to start. So a lot of folks weren't interested in changing jobs at that point in the year. Um, so we go through the process. Like I said, it was probably, gosh, Seven to ten days was all it was. And the final three guys for the job ended up being Tom Abatamarco, who was Jim Valvano's assistant. Uh, you may have crossed paths with Tom. Oh, yes, no doubt. Too. We could do a whole show on Tom Abatamarco, as you know, Coach. Oh, God. <laughs> he, he should be on this show because he is really one funny guy. And um, it, it was him and then uh, a guy named Roy Williams. I don't know what happened to him. I don't know how things turned out for him, but I ended up getting the job. Um, so uh, went from right in the frying pan into the fire, and uh, school had already started. The staff was already intact. I kind of inherited all that, uh, but uh, Murray had left things in really good shape. We didn't have the best team in the league, but we managed to win it that first year, and 
and the rest, as they say, is history. Yeah, no doubt, starting there in 1985, and then you have the terrific run there, five NCAA tournaments, two NITs, eight Southern Conference regular season championships, five tournament titles. But, Coach, I wanted to talk with you about your great team you had during the 96-97 season. Here's Chattanooga in the Sweet 16, of course, here we are in uh, March Madness now, and that must have been a really magical run for you. Yeah, it, it, you know, it was so funny, Jeff, in that uh, we had we had probably had better teams, to be honest. But when you're in a one-bid league, you don't always win the tournament. You don't always get to go. And then when you do get to go, um, and you're from the Southern Conference, sometimes you get matched up against ridiculously good teams, like, the very first tournament we won, we had finished fifth in the regular season, won the tournament, and we played Oklahoma with Stacy King and Blaylock and Grace and all those, Grant and all those guys. They were the number one overall uh, seed, number one overall seed in the tournament uh, that year, 1988. So, you know, you don't have a lot of chance. And then we ran into, we ran into Kansas one year with Pierce and Jacques Vaughn and Ostertag and Scott Pollard and they had gotten beat in the Big 12 tournament, and they had shipped them out to the South region, region, so they were a little bit upset. So you don't have much chance against a team like that. Then we caught Connecticut with uh, with with the two uh, uh, marshals, Danielle and Donnie Marshall, and uh, uh, a guy named Ray Allen, who I, I heard was pretty good in the NBA, and, uh, and then Travis Knight, the big center, and they had gotten beat in their tournament, so they shipped them out west. So we play them in Salt Lake City. We kept getting these horrible troubles. <laughs> um, and then, we, we, but now we were going pretty regularly. We we went four out of five years. Uh, so now it wasn't just fun to get there. We wanted to we wanted to really do something when we got there. And this particular team in ninety six ninety seven was a veteran team. We had five fifth year guys. We were an older team, and you hear that all the time now. But it was it was true even then if you had a veteran team. And, I, and I'll, I'll bore you with some details. We were uh, at that team that went to the Sweet 16. Going into conference play, we were four and seven and had one Division One win. Wow. We weren't very we weren't very good. We got beat in the championship. The only time we lost our holiday tournament, we got beat by a team from Canisius with a guy named John Beeline as coach. And we're watching this film, and we're not happy uh, because we're we were better than them, to be honest. And they beat us. And we watched that film and watched that film. We had seven days off after the tournament before conference play started, and we went back and changed everything we were doing. We just we just swapped everything, and uh, and said we're not getting the most out of these guys. We need to change some things that we're doing, and we did. We won 11 in a row by an average of 22 points a game. And we got on a roll, and we lost a couple down the stretch, uh, but won the, won the regular season going away and then won the tournament actually on a tip-in at the buzzer against Marshall in Greensboro. Um, and all of a sudden, we're back in the NCAA for the fourth time in five years, and, and we knew we were good enough. We had an NBA lottery pick in Johnny Taylor, uh, who, uh, while he was a great talent, wasn't like – Far and away, our best player. We had a number of good players, uh, and we had some size. But if we knew if we could get the right draw, that we would have a chance. And here comes Selection Sunday, and we uh, we see Georgia pop up, and they don't have a dominant center. They had gotten hot and played well in the tournament. 
Tubby Smith was the coach. And we said, hey, this, this is a real possibility. We started the game. We're ahead 22-2. to two. And uh, needless to say, we were, we were hanging on at the end, but we managed to pull it off. And then the next round, we play against Lon Kruger in Illinois. In, uh, these games are both in Charlotte. And, uh, again, a similar team without a dominant center, good guards, but not really better than ours. And we managed to beat them handily. I think we held them with one field goal in the last eight minutes of the game. And just to just to go show you how crazy this is, we go to the next game. Now we're in Birmingham against Pete Gillen and Providence, and they've got God Sham God and Austin Crozier, and they've got a really good team. And we lose a five point game where we missed about ten free throws. I still kick myself <laughs> about that game. But the the strange part is with Beeline and Gillen, the next year, the next fall. I'm at VCU, Pete Gillen is at UVA, and John Beeline is at the University of Richmond. That's crazy. Basketball, you can't make this crazy no. stuff up in this world. No. And the common thread, of course, is Sonny Smith, who was at VCU. And, Coach, you end up going there, and you're the head coach there, and you end up with a winning record at VCU, 66-55. and 55. That's a great program, as you've already talked about, the winning tradition they have with the Rams. Uh, what are some of your fondest memories of coaching at VCU? <laughs> well, they, they, uh, we inherited a little bit of a mess, and, uh, and and certainly I don't want to disparage study because he did a great job there. They went to the NCAA, and of course they made the transition from the Metro Sunbelt into the CAA and that kind of thing, and uh, playing downtown, not having an on-campus arena at that point in time, and uh, things had slipped a little bit. Sonny tells me this, and and I thought he was kidding at the time. It was one of the great lines I've ever heard. When I got there, he said, now, Mac, he said, uh, I'm going to retire next year. But honestly, I quit about three years ago. <laughs> 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 it, wasn't, it wasn't quite like that, but it wasn't in great shape when we got there. But, um, but we, we almost uh, broke even the first year, and then we got better and better. In my final year, we were 22-11 and 11 and played in the championships. Uh, against one of the really good UNCW teams with uh, Brett Blizzard and that group. Uh, so uh, I was. it was really a great time. VCU is a unique job, and uh, they, because they don't have football, basketball is the thing, and everybody there is, is pulling in the same direction, and they're clearly really well-funded. Uh, all of a sudden, we were chartering to every game and doing whatever we needed to do, and um, I had the unique experience. Our first year, we were supposed to be in the Siegel Center, the brand new building. Stuart Siegel, ECU grad, and um, you know, famous name here in town too. Uh, paid some money to have the building named after him and his co- company and that kind of thing. So, um, but it didn't get finished on time. So all of a sudden, we didn't have a home. We didn't. We didn't know where we were playing. We played games at Franklin Street. We played at the Coliseum, and then we played our entire conference schedule at the Robbins Center at the University of Richmond. Um, and that was a little bit awkward, got us off to a little bit of a slow start, but but we recovered and moved into the Siegel Center. And, of course, the Siegel Center was uh, the opening night was supposed to be the University of Virginia. We ended up playing them at Richmond, which wasn't quite the same, obviously. Uh, but we also had a contract with some of the old Metro members where they had to come and play a game against us uh, and we were able to talk Denny Crum and Louisville into opening the Siegel Center, uh, and it was just an incredible night. We had uh, we had what's the uh, what's the boxing announcer's name Buffer? Yeah, Michael Buffer doing the 
it's ready. It's uh, getting ready to rumble. Yeah, and all that. Uh, it was kind of a black tie event, and we came from twenty down and ended up uh, winning the game by about twenty. And uh, it was just an incredible night and got us off to a good start. We went. I think we were. I think in the three years we were in the building, we were thirty six and four, thirty six and five at home at the Siegel Center during those uh, during those three years. Had so. Had some great moments there for sure. Yeah, no doubt about that. That's when you and I started to cross paths. Of course, I knew about Mac McCarthy for years and years, but then I would see you and ECU would play VCU. And then, of course, uh, of course Coach, your, your time's up there. And lo and behold, here you come to, to East Carolina in 2005. Ricky Stokes is named the head coach. And you come to uh, to ECU. I think I'll always remember the press conference, Coach, because it was a little bit different. Ann Holland, Terry Holland's wife, uh, Terry was the athletics director here at the time. She actually introduced both you and Coach Stokes that day. That was a little different, wasn't it? <laughs> well, that whole thing was a little different. I had, uh, I went in when I left VCU. I stayed in Richmond and did two years full time for what was then ESPN Regional, which is now, I guess, ESPNU, uh, and did some radio shows. I did a, uh, you'll like this, I did. I took over a full-time NASCAR show from a guy who did a show at a barbecue place there in Richmond, and he did it all summer, but when fall came, he was a big Virginia Tech football fan, so he followed them in an RV, and he asked if I'd just take his show. So I did, uh, <laughs> I did his uh, – Judy West was his Dave. I just finally thought of his Dave. But I did the radio show, uh, a NASCAR show full-time, and I also did a full-time show five days a week in Chattanooga on the old uh, sport talk show down there. Uh, so I was doing a lot of stuff, did 40, 50 basketball games a year on television all over the country uh, and uh, and had a good time. And then Dave Brain called and asked if I'd be interested in coming back into coaching. And he was hiring a, a women's coach that uh, has not been a head coach and thought she could use a, a veteran presence on the bench, and that kind of thing, and went down there. And that was really a, a fun year in a lot of ways. And working for Dave Brain, as you know, uh, is a – is a pleasure and Georgia Tech being in the ACC was a lot of fun. But then Coach Holland called, and it was one of the funnier calls in hindsight that I've ever had. And uh, I was driving, and he called and said, uh, "You know, I've got a, uh, an opening up here at East Carolina." I said, "Yeah, Coach, I, I heard that you had to let Coach Harry go." And he said, "Yeah." He said, uh, "He said, uh, is this something you'd be interested in?" And I said, "Yeah." I said, "I would be." And uh, he said, well, I can't, I don't think I can hire you. Uh, <laughs> uh, okay. I, he said, uh, you know, uh, you, you know, to hire the, the men's coach here, I don't know if I can hire an assistant women's coach from, uh, you know, from another school. I don't know if that'll work. I said, okay. Um, then, uh, why are you calling me? He said, well, I'm thinking about hiring Ricky Stokes. I said, uh, well, you know, Ricky, you know, had did some good things at Virginia tech and recruited well. And, went through that transition from the A-10 into the ACC and all that. And, uh, um, you know, I, and you have a really good relationship with him. I can see that working. He said, well, I don't know if I can hire Ricky because uh, um, his record wasn't very good at Virginia Tech. I said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Where are we going with this, Coach? <laughs> Where are we going? He finally said, he said, but you know what I think I can do? I think I can hire both of you together. And, uh 
I said, well, have you talked to Ricky about that? I said, said, well, he said, uh, I I think he'd be interested in doing it. And we all got together, and uh, we actually met in Columbia, South Carolina, and uh, Nick Floyd and Coach Allen and Ricky and I, and uh, worked it all out and uh, came here with a a lot of excitement, but uh, but a lot of challenges, too. So uh, I'm certainly glad that that my path, my career path, took me to uh, to Greenville because it's been a, a great experience despite the fact that we didn't have the basketball success we'd like to have had. That's a wonderful story. It really is. And, uh, Coach, uh, we've talked about uh, your career and – now you have the opportunity in semi-retirement, I guess you would say, to write a book. So I wanted to give you the opportunity to tell us about your book, the title, and I guess my first question is, why did you decide to write a book? Well, I've always wanted to write a book, Jeff. I've always wanted to, and I've signed several contracts and started writing several books, but those were basketball kind of instructional books. Okay. Books. Um, but a couple years ago, uh, a young lady here in town, Bethany Bradshaw, who you know. Yep. Um, she has written several different books, Clark, Coach Claire, and, and other things, Everett Case, and uh, the Dixie Classic, and uh, uh, the Blue Rock, and all those kind of things. She's written a bunch of books. And she was doing one on Fletcher Errett, the coach at Fort Union Military, who I've been friends with for 40 years, I guess. And, uh, uh, I did. I sat down with her, and we, she interviewed me for the book. And then, uh, when the book came out, uh, she dropped one by, and uh, and we got to talking. She said, "If you know of anybody else," and she was thinking of all the contacts I had that would would be interested in writing a book. Uh, you know, I do ghost writing, or I do editing, or you know, I, I can do whatever part of the process they'd like to do. If if you come across anybody, I said, "You know what? I, I would really like to write a book." And, uh, and then, uh, the COVID thing that, that coincided with that time where I had all of a sudden a lot of downtime with games canceled and not much sports on television and, and everything. And, uh, we talked about her ghost writing it and I said, you know, I'd like to try to write it myself. So I literally sat down, um, with her guidance and help, thank goodness. And uh, and wrote a dadgum book. It, it, it didn't take that long to write the book. It just kind of it just kind of flowed off. And wow! I've got so many stories and things that I I regret not including in the book. But there are a lot of great stories in the book. But it's it's kind of biographical with with lots of basketball thrown in, uh, and a little bit about each of the places that I've been fortunate enough to live. We've lived in some great places with great people and. Uh, I didn't know about the second part of it. Writing it was the easier part when it was compared to the publishing and printing. That that got real complicated. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but again, uh, she 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 walked me through all that, and that, that she had a, a graphic design person uh, right here in the neighborhood. Also, ironically, Bethany lives about a half a mile from me, so uh, we cross paths all the time. She. She's out there running, and I'm out there walking, so we see each other regularly. And uh, it, it turned into just a, a fun project. Uh, I started writing in probably March, and we had the book public, published by Labor Day. 
Um, and it's it's been really well received. Going back and reminiscing about all the things that have happened to me, all the good things that have happened, and all the great people I've been around and touching base with them and researching outcomes of games that I thought I remembered, uh, but wanted to make sure I had all the facts right and uh, getting in touch with the SIDs at each school and newspaper people in each town. Uh, the whole process was so much fun. And it's even been more fun selling the book and have people contact me uh, about things that, that they remembered in the book or that they remembered in addition to the book. Um, the, the whole thing has been a, a ball. It's just been great fun. Mac, what is the title of the book? <laughs> the book, the title might be the best thing about the book. There'll be people that say uh, that was the highlight, but uh, the title of the book is What I'm About to Say is the Truth or Could Be. <laughs> and, uh, besides being pretty darn funny, uh, the, where I heard that was Eddie Biedenbach. And Eddie says that all the time when he's getting ready to speak or when he's getting ready to tell a story. And I thought Eddie had come up with this. But it turns out he stole it from somebody else, so I didn't mind stealing it from <laughs> You know, uh, Coach, a lot of folks I'm sure would like to uh, read the book who who have not gotten it as of yet. So how can they get it? You know, we kind of kept it in-house, Jeff. Uh, you can go to MacMcCarthy.com and and get the book. Uh, you know, I had some help with the website set up, and it, it, it's gone really well. And that's allowed me to kind of interact with people rather than people buying it at Amazon or, or somewhere else. But um, you know, you can contact me through that and you can ask for a personalized copy or whatever you want to do. But yeah, MacMcCarthy.com will get you there. And, uh, and, uh, Gene and I have made many trips to the post office shipping those books. <laughs> uh, of course, locally, we've delivered a lot of them in person too. I bet so. Well, you've mentioned your wife, Jean, a number of times today, coach, and she is a lovely lady. It's not easy being a coach's wife. You talk about her moving into a dorm, which probably a lot of women would, would not want to do, but she's been your partner all of these years, hasn't she? Yeah, we've, uh, we've, you know, I don't know whether she would even want to admit it, but we've been together since the eighth grade, which is just wow. crazy. That doesn't happen anymore. And, uh, and to give you an idea of, of what a trooper she is, uh, when we got married, we were going into our senior year at Virginia. I was at Virginia Tech, and she was at Radford. And um, we'd obviously uh, been together a long time. But uh, she starts planning the wedding. She comes with, up with a date, and we have a whole group of us that's getting married on consecutive weekends. And uh, she says, we're getting married on this Saturday. I said, no, we're not, because Virginia Tech plays their opening football game on that Saturday. And uh, and that didn't go over too well, <laughs> uh, as you can imagine. But, uh, but we did agree that we could do it on Sunday. And she says, well, Saturday night uh, we'll have the uh, rehearsal dinner and all that. I said, no, we won't. I'll be in Blacksburg uh, at the football game. And <laughs> she, she, again, makes the compromise. Uh, I don't know if much of a compromise. I guess she surrendered. And we had the rehearsal party on Friday. And then we all loaded up, went to the football game on Saturday, got married on Sunday. And she didn't know the rest of the story was not only did we go to the football game on uh, on Saturday and the, get married on Sunday, we went to the uh, to the homestead, a, a resort there in Virginia for our honeymoon. And um, she thought we were going back to Blacksburg, but we drove from the homestead 
to Lexington, Kentucky for game two. Uh, and right away, she knew she had made a mistake. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, Coach, you had your priorities in order. Yeah, well, I had priorities. Yeah. They were in order. And uh, your your daughter, of course, uh, lived here in Greenville with you for a while. Uh, how's she doing? She's doing great, Katie. Uh, Katie, we were really lucky to, to you know we had we were we were gosh in our mid thirties before we had Katie. Uh, we had kind of thought maybe things were going to pass us by, but boy, were we fortunate. Uh, a redheaded Irish girl, Katie <laughs> McCarthy, uh, you know, it was kind of uh, too stereotypical to be true, and she's been great. Uh, of course, she was born in Chattanooga, but kind of grew up in Richmond and went to uh, the collegiate school there, and uh, she's now gotten two degrees from the University of Virginia, and uh, I hate writing those checks to that place, <laughs> guy, but that's just the way it is, and uh, she did, she had a great time there and had a great experience there too. And she's an architectural historian, and she lives in Fredericksburg, Virginia now, which is close enough for us to to get up there if we need to. Yep, absolutely. Hey, Mac, it has been a pleasure. You have been a great credit to the coaching profession and to college athletics for all of these years. Thanks for everything uh, you've done, not only for college basketball but everything you've done here at ecu and in the community of greenville thanks so much for sharing these wonderful stories with us today we really appreciate your time jeff i appreciate you uh as you well know uh, when you when you work with coaches all the time it's uh, it, it's really helpful that you uh that you get along and enjoy each other's company and uh uh, congrats to you on what's been an incredible career and, and and thank you for allowing me to be part of it that's basketball coach mac mccarthy what a great episode today of the pirate radio podcast with the voice jeff charles and his special guest coach mac mccarthy special thanks to our sponsor white claw hard seltzer look for white claw at your favorite retailer next time you're out shopping White Claw Hard Seltzer is available in five fruit flavors, has two grams of carbs, is gluten-free, and is only 100 calories, and nothing tastes quite like it. We'll be back very soon with another edition of the Pirate Radio Podcast. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe to our podcast in your Apple Store. Visit our website at PR927FM.com and follow us on social media at PR927FM to keep up with the latest news and information. Until next time, have a great day, everyone. You have been listening to the Pirate Radio Podcast, brought to you by White Claw Hard Seltzer. Nothing tastes quite like it. Visit WhiteClaw.com today. White Claw Hard Seltzer, proudly distributed by Coastal Beverage. Please drink responsibly. The Pirate Radio Podcast is an exclusive presentation by Pirate Radio, the voice of the Pirate Nation.